join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, school is back this week, or at least it was supposed to be, but got postponed again because of a massive blizzard in southern Ontario. So we'll go deep on all the questions you may have about a return to in-class learning, which should happen this week. And a big cabinet resignation hits the Ontario government. It's Tuesday, January 18th, 2022, so let's get to it. JMM, just before we get to the school reopening questions, let's quickly touch on some big on-poly news, which dropped last Friday afternoon. Rod Phillips, the former minister of long-term care, former finance minister as well, has stepped down from his portfolio and will quit politics altogether next month. How's that for a shot across Premier Doug Ford's bow? Huge surprise, obviously, to uh, those of us uh, outside of government uh, watching at home. Uh, Probably a big surprise for people in government too. Uh, No real indication uh, that this was coming. Uh, You know, uh, Minister Phillips, or I guess no longer Minister Phillips, uh, just, you know, had the long-term care job for less than a year. a, a statement was released. I'm not sure I would call it an explanation for why uh, he has decided now is the time for him to get out of provincial politics. Normally, if a person is is going to get out of politics uh, uh, this close to an election, uh, they would stick around until the election. They would dutifully tell their party they're not running again, give the party time to find a new candidate, etc., etc. Mr. Phillips is uh, leaving as of February, uh, probably around the time that the legislature is supposed to return. (laughs) So um, uh, odd timing on that front, too. Uh, Just a a really, all in all, a very curious event. (laughs) Well, that's the thing I want to follow up with you on, because you and I, you know, we both try pretty hard to keep our ear to the ground at Queen's Park. And as you pointed out, not a word in the press release from the Premier's office or from Rod Phillips about why this is happening. Are you hearing any speculation as to what happened? Like you, I suspect I'm hearing a lot of speculation, uh, but not uh, anything that I would say is is terribly well-founded. The Premier was uh, speaking to the media on Monday, and he said that uh, Phillips wants to move on from government and that the the last four years in politics uh, have taken a toll. Uh, And that's surely true, but I think it's also fair to say that neither you nor I accept that as the whole truth. Uh, Phillips has been uh, a pillar in the Progressive Conservative Party, and his name was raised as a leadership contender in both 2014 and 2018. Uh, though he opted not to contest either of those leadership races. Uh, He was the second most important elected official in Ontario after the Premier himself, just a bit more than a year ago. Uh, So I think all of us are looking for a bit more in terms of explanation. You know, it it, it could be a personal matter. uh, It could be political, uh, but I don't think we know the full story yet. Indeed. And you and I actually, (laughs) you're quite right about Uh, nature abhorring a vacuum, and therefore we are moving in with speculation to fill that vacuum. And if people want to uh, check out our weekly newsletter, uh, it is all about this subject um, and and some of the speculation that's out there. But let's do one more go-round on this, because the NDP had just announced a bit of a star candidate, Steve Parrish, the former mayor of Ajax, to be their standard bearer in Ajax. Parrish is coming out of retirement to do this. He would obviously be a much more formidable challenge than Phillips's competition last time out. And I guess one wonders whether that might have had anything to do with his decision. 
The timing lends itself to that theory, doesn't it? Uh, I, I admitted on Twitter last week that when the New Democrats first announced Parrish as a candidate, my initial reaction was something like, well, I guess it's good the party can still attract big names to lose to Rod Phillips in June. <laughs> and uh, if I hadn't actually had some discretion for once, I probably would have had to eat those words. Um, but it just goes to show that, you know, you can be too cynical for politics sometimes. <laughs> I like to think that we're just skeptical, not cynical. And there is a difference between the two. Well, let's go through the count here, because according to my count, that's seven progressive conservative members of the legislature who have now announced that they will not be running in the next election. Now, in my experience, seven government MPPs declining to stand for re-election after a government's first term, when the government is in first place in the public opinion polls and has been for several months, that's unusual. What do you think's going on here? You know, we discussed some of this when we talked about Jeff Urich announcing his retirement as well. And so, you know, some of it is genuinely that it has been a hard four years, uh, harder than I think a lot of Tories anticipated, especially in those heady days after the 2018 win. Um, but not all of it has been the pandemic. Uh, you know, I think it's long ago now, but, you know, remember that Ford's first year is widely seen in retrospect as a bit of disaster. Uh, so I, I think that difficulty is part of it. Um but I think the question that a lot of people are asking is, uh, does Phillips leaving signal that Tories think this government won't be reelected? Uh, before Phillips' announcement, I would have said not necessarily. I don't think that was sort of conclusive. But since last Friday, uh, I've been giving that theory uh, a lot more weight. Well, as well you should. A, a big-name cabinet minister leaving suddenly in a key 905 riding, a bellwether riding. The Tories really want to hold it. It doesn't help the party in its re-election chances this summer, surely. Right. You know, it's a bit of a, a chicken and egg problem, right? Is, is Phillips leaving because the re-election odds are looking tougher than he'd like? Or are the re-election odds tougher because MPPs like Phillips are calling it a day? You know, the correct answer might be yes to both. Right. Okay, that is the Phillips story. And again, we remind people, and we'll put it in the show notes, the link to it. Check out our uh, weekly newsletter, On Poly Newsletter as well, for more on this. Now, without further ado, let's start answering the myriad questions that I know parents and students and teachers and education workers, child care centers and so on, they no doubt have about what was supposed to take place on Monday of this week, which was back to in-class learning. Didn't happen because of the blizzard, but should happen this week at some point. First, let's get the details of the province's back-to-school plan, which they announced just last week. JMM, if you would, the main bullet points, please. So the government has announced that 3.9 million rapid tests will be shipped to schools. Uh, there are going to be school-based vaccination clinics uh, for clarity, uh, these are going to be clinics operated during school hours. Previously, school-based clinics uh, were scheduled outside of school hours. The thinking was they didn't want to disrupt uh, learning time. Uh, there will be 9 million and 95 masks, uh, 4 million three-ply uh, uh, disposable masks for students, uh, and 3,000 more uh, HEPA filter units uh, distributed to uh, Ontario schools above and beyond uh, the, the many thousands that were already distributed. Okay, those are the bullet points. Let's go deeper on each one. What percentage of students in the province of Ontario have already been vaccinated? 
50% of the 5 to 11-year-old uh, cohort have had their first dose, but only 7% of them have had their second. Uh, the numbers are quite a bit higher for the 12 to 17-year-olds because, of course, uh, the vaccine has been available for them uh, much longer. Uh, more than 82% of uh, that age group have had both doses. Uh, note that as of right now, uh, nobody under the age of 18 is approved for third doses or boosters. Um, <laughs> just one of those things in the data. Uh, a few thousand kids in Ontario uh, have actually got th uh, third doses, uh, according to the province's data. I assume that's because of medical necessity, and I know of at least a few cases where it was actually just an error. <laughs> but in any case, uh, we have a long way to go in terms of vaccinating, uh, especially that, that 5 to 11-year-old group. Does the higher vaccination rate among high school students explain why elementary school students are getting first dibs on the rapid test today? Uh, yes, that is basically the government's justification for it. There is uh, still an ongoing shortage of rapid tests. And so, uh, you know, the province is uh, prioritizing who gets the, the tests that we have. Uh, elementary students are less vaccinated as a whole than uh, secondary school students and also, you know, much less vaccinated than the province in general. So, they are getting priority access to the 3.9 million uh, rapid tests that have been sent to schools. Now, 3.9 million rapid tests sounds like a lot, but we have to remember there's 2 million students in Ontario. So are 3.9 million tests enough? Probably not. Certainly not if you consider that at least some households, if not many, are going to need more than these initial two tests that they are, are receiving from the schools. Um, the province is expecting 1 million more rapid tests from the federal government as the supply comes in. Uh, we mentioned this last week, the feds have announced uh, 140 million rapid tests have been procured, uh, but it's going to take time for those all to arrive. Uh, the government also says, sorry, the provincial government, I should say, says uh, they will be trying to uh, make tests available to students after those first two are used up. So some kind of replenishment uh, that is, of course, going to depend on uh, supply and that supply actually arriving in a timely fashion, uh, both of which have been problems through the pandemic. Booster vaccination clinics. Who are they open to? Uh, the province is creating 10 additional clinics uh, focused on the education and child care sector. Uh, all educators, child care staff, uh, and students are eligible. Uh, educators and child care staff, of course, are eligible to get their uh, third doses. Uh, children under 18, if they haven't yet gotten their first or second, will also be eligible. Now, given the low uptake by elementary school students on vaccination so far, any thought being given to making those vaccines mandatory, just as you know, mumps, measles, rubella, those vaccinations are mandatory. Right. So this is a, uh, a long-standing Ontario law called the Immunization of School Pupils Act uh, that requires... Uh... <laughs> People didn't see this. I just gave you the thumbs up because only John Michael McGrath would know the actual name of the act <laughs> that requires kids to get vaccinated. So that's why I gave you a little thumbs up there. <laughs> This is what the people expect from me, Steve. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to call it the ISPA for now. Uh, the ISPA requires that kids uh, both get vaccinated and report their vaccination status. If you don't get vaccinated, in theory, your kids can be uh, uh, withheld from school. They can be suspended. Um, Dr. Kieran Moore, the chief medical officer of health, uh, was asked if there was any thought to adding COVID vaccines uh, to the uh, existing rules under the ISPA. Um, and he said no. Uh, in his words, you know, this this vaccine is, is too new to be made part of the sort of the mandatory series. Uh, they still want to see whether there are any side effects to it. 
Uh, so far, uh, they've seen very, very little, certainly far, far less than we even saw with the uh, adult COVID vaccines. Uh, despite that, uh, Dr. Moore says they are not uh, prepared to make it mandatory. Uh, but to be very clear, <laughs> Moore also added, you know, in the U.S., studies show uh, unvaccinated children are 20 times more likely to be hospitalized than vaccinated kids. Uh, so obviously, uh, you know, the advice here is, you know, if your child is five or older and eligible, you know, please get them vaccinated. Uh, that <laughs> all said, uh, Dr. Moore did get himself into a little bit of hot water when he he gave that answer, uh, because some people read that statement as um, calling the efficacy or safety of the vaccines into question. That started to blow up a little bit on Twitter, and the Minister of Health's office uh, put out a, a, a hasty statement later that day uh, where uh, Dr. Moore said, quote, I want to be clear that the pediatric Pfizer vaccine for children 5 to 11 is safe, effective, and provides strong protection against COVID-19 and its variants. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, from the Department of what the medical officer of health meant to say was. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and I think, you know, we can all be smart asses about this if we want to be, but I think the reality is, you know, someone in his position uh, utters tens of thousands of words in support of the message that he's trying to get out. And I don't think we can be terribly shocked that maybe on one or two occasions, he might have a little bit of a misstatement, right? Let's cut him some slack here. No, and, and when I was watching the press conference live, when he said that, um, I didn't bump on that at all. Uh, you know, I heard what he was saying, and I heard it in the context of, of why he was saying it. And... I, it, I just sort of moved on. Uh, and then I saw it explode on Twitter and I, I realized, ah, okay, mm -hmm. I see what's happening now, you know. Okay, let's talk ventilation, which was another one of the bullet points you started out with. The province has spent so far $600 million sending 70,000 so-called HEPA units since September. Now they've got plans for more. What's the story here? Uh, the province is promising 3,000 more HEPA units. Uh, Minister of Education Stephen Lecce uh, says that there is now high-quality ventilation in every school. Uh, he also claims that Ontario has more HEPA filters deployed than every other province combined. We should note that Quebec has really not done anything for HEPA filters in its public schools, so this is almost sort of a, you know a, an unavoidable mathematical fact, but that's a point in Ontario's favor, let's say. Uh, the minister also says that every school has been inspected. That's uh, almost 5,000 schools in Ontario. Uh, and the results are supposed to be publicly available for each school on the school board websites. Now, you know this question was coming, and that is, can the minister guarantee that every school will have a HEPA filter? I mean, this is sort of like asking, you know, can the minister of education guarantee that every single teacher, uh, you know, in all of Ontario's schools never says a stupid thing, right? <laughs> we know anybody who's read a newspaper knows that's not true. Uh, you know, it, it is the government's job, of course, to procure these air filters, uh, but it's not like the minister is going to visit every school individually to, you know, check for correct placement or anything. Um, you know, we have the school boards and the school administrators themselves to, to do the job of ensuring that they are, you know, using the equipment that the government provides. Um, I should also add that, uh, you know, not every classroom is necessarily going to have a HEPA filter. Uh, these are being prioritized for schools and uh, classrooms within schools where, you know, perhaps for age or maintenance reasons, there aren't other ways to improve ventilation. Uh, so, you know, a school that is brand new where they've got a really advanced 
HVAC system already might not get a HEPA filter at all. Um, you know, and some school boards have raised this as a problem. Uh, the Dufferin Peel Catholic School Board last week said uh, that uh, this creates uh, an equity issue for staff and students. All right. What about the issue of enough employees in the system to deal with all of this? Because we sure know that one of the big stories of Omicron is lots of absenteeism in lots of different places because lots of people are getting sick. Right. And, you know, at least here, the school boards have a system set up to deal with sick teachers, and it's called supply teachers. <laughs> and uh, anybody who's ever been in a classroom uh, has had a supply teacher at some point. Uh, 2,000 new staff uh, have been hired, according to the government, uh, teachers, mental health workers, custodians. Um, each board is going to be able to make its decisions about uh, where what is needed where. Um, but also, uh, the, the government is, is also talking about expanding the availability of supply teachers as well. That's supply teachers. What about the notion of getting retired teachers back into the classroom, again, given how many teachers are booking off sick? Right. And this is uh, one of, I think, what will probably end up being one of the largest uh, influxes of, um, I'm not sure you can necessarily call it new labor, but labor into the, the, the teaching workforce. Uh, 11,000 retired educators have come into the teaching system over the past year. Uh, and the province has now made an arrangement with the Ontario Teachers Federation to allow those retired educators to spend almost twice as much time in the classroom as they would normally be allowed to. Uh, they are normally limited based on the conditions of the Ontario teacher's pension uh, to 50 days or less per year uh, in terms of active time teaching uh, in schools. Uh, that uh, agreement is now being temporarily extended to 95 days. Uh, again, I mean, this is just a sign of how uh, big an issue uh, COVID illness is uh, for every large employer, but certainly school boards count. Uh, you know, we're talking about nearly doubling the amount of work that we're asking supply teachers to do because it's probably going to be necessary just to fill all the holes that we have. Mm -hmm. And what about schools themselves doing things differently because of the, you know, fantastic tr transmissibility of Omicron? What are they doing differently now? Well, it probably won't surprise anybody to learn that uh, we were saying goodbye to contact sports again for a little bit. Uh, they are also introducing uh, new protocols for lunch hours, trying to space out students more, uh, elevated cleaning protocols. There are, of course, medical professionals who uh, have, have questioned the efficacy of some of these measures, who you know, are still arguing for smaller class sizes and other measures that the government hasn't pursued. But uh, these are the measures that the, the government is uh, uh, working on now. And notwithstanding all of that, if a student does demonstrate some of the symptoms of COVID-19, then what? Uh, well, they will be sent home to use the two rapid tests that they are being provided. Uh, if they are vaccinated and they test positive, uh, you're looking at uh, no less than a, a five-day isolation period, uh, and then they can return to school after those five days. Uh, if they are unvaccinated uh, and they are 12 years older, uh, then it is a 10-day isolation period if they test positive. Now, what about daycare centers? Does this apply to them as well? Uh, daycares will also get uh, the two rapid tests and the same isolation rules do apply. And if they test negative on the rapid tests? They can return to their daycare if uh, their symptoms improve and they test negative twice uh, within 24 to 48 hours between uh, those two tests. Well, let me pick up on that because we have talked in the past about the reliability of these rapid antigen tests, so-called rat tests. Is that still a concern? Uh, it is, uh, and this is why people are being provided with two tests. Uh, 
using one test uh, is dicey, let's put it that way. The, the, the reliability is questionable. Uh, so the best practice is really to use, uh, you know, at least two tests. Uh, you know, in a perfect world, you would have even more than two, but we do not live in a perfect world. Uh, so the idea is, yeah, two tests, 24 to 48 hours apart, and uh, that will somewhat offset the um, uh, worries about the reliability of these rapid tests. Now, let's talk about what turned out to be the lead story on all of this, uh, at least for many journalists when they reported on this last week, and that is the new guidelines, which say that parents are not going to be told about outbreaks in their kids' schools unless there's at least a 30% absentee rate among the students and staff too, I guess. Now, what's the feedback on that? Uh, the feedback wasn't great, uh, at least not great from the government's perspective. Uh, it was the the one part of Education Minister Stephen Lecce's announcement that I, I think caught the most attention from reporters because uh, it's a pretty high threshold for absenteeism before parents could find out uh, what's happening in their kids' schools. The government did clarify later in the day that they will be disclosing absentee rates for all schools, not just those that hit the 30% threshold. Um, you know, this is a problem with the data, right? Absenteeism isn't the same thing as reporting COVID cases, but as we've talked about before, we just don't have a solid testing for COVID right now, so we've got to make do with less precise indicators. Um, so absenteeism it is. Um, that said, some school boards have said they will disclose outbreaks uh, where they can. Uh, the Toronto District School Board, for one, uh, has said that you know wh where they're able to, they will be disclosing outbreaks. And let's see if it's still going to work now the way it worked before anybody was vaccinated, which is to say, if one kid in a cohort gets sick, everybody used to get sent home to isolate. Is that still the case? The aim of cohorting was to uh, group students together in, in smaller groups so that if there was an outbreak in one group, it wouldn't necessarily affect the rest of the school. Uh, the government uh, it seems to have given up on that right now, uh, saying that they, it's not really required anymore. Well, maybe because of the higher vaccination rates, but that wouldn't be the case in child care centers. So what's the story there? Uh, it seems like uh, each daycare is more or less deciding for themselves. Uh, some are talking about sending whole, you know, cohorts home. Others are not. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could give better advice to parents listening, but you probably want to talk to your daycare provider. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. You know, it's hard to give better advice because at the moment, this is all being billed as empowering parents to make their <laughs> own decisions about their own children and whether they're able to go to school. Is that really what it is? Not sure how to answer that one. Um, <laughs> You know, the, the Minister of Education said that it was empowering because the parents are being provided with these two tests. And I mean, two tests is three less than what I was given for my kid at the beginning of the Christmas break. It's also three less than I was able to pick up at the LCBO <laughs> if I was, you know, lots of parents in, in uh, Toronto did that. Um, you know, it's sort of, I guess it's uh, certainly better to have the tests uh, than not. Uh, but I think a lot of people are, are casting a skeptical eye towards this. Uh, Annie Kidder from People for Education uh, called it DIY decision making. You know, uh, the idea is if your kid shows symptoms, do the rapid tests. If they're positive, keep them home. Uh, if they're negative, I guess even if it's a false negative, because how would you know, uh, make your best decision as to whether you want them back in class. Is there any reason to suspect that schools are a more transmissible place for Omicron? You know, this 
really goes back to a debate we've been having since, uh, gosh, what, 18 months? Uh, you know, certainly the government's position has been no uh, for quite some time now. They say schools reflect community activity. So if there's a ton of COVID out in the community, there's going to be COVID in the schools. Dr. Kieran Moore, uh, like his predecessor, uh, David Williams, uh, really does insist that schools uh, are not uh, a significant driver of Omicron. Uh, they, they are not causing more COVID to spread in the community than they would otherwise. Now, let's hit on one of the biggest stories surrounding COVID-19, and that is Quebec, where, of course, uh, the premier there has gone on record as saying he wants a new special tax on the unvaxxed. Is that anything that Ontario would consider? Uh According to Dr. Moore, no. Uh, he said uh, he has not recommended that. He uh, added for emphasis that he will not be recommending that. Um, he, he called it a, a punitive approach and said that he is really preferring a, a preventative one. Uh, so unless there's a significant change uh, of view from him, uh, he will not be advising the government to do that. Uh, and in case there was any doubt, uh, the person who Dr. Moore advises, uh, Premier Doug Ford said the same thing later in the day on Wednesday. We're taking a different approach. Uh, we aren't going down that road. We're, we're going to take a different approach. Now, that's both a very interesting and very provocative decision made by the Quebec government. It's an empirically provable fact that polls show this decision has the support of the vast majority of Quebecers. They like the decision. It's also a fact that unvaccinated people make up a significantly disproportionate part of the hospitalized and intensive care unit population at hospitals. So politically, this does have some appeal. However, you want us to give, you want to give us the however on this? Sure. Uh, you know, we don't levy uh, an extra special income tax on smokers uh, who themselves consume uh, more of the healthcare budget than non-smokers. Uh, we don't do that for any number of, of chronic conditions, whether it's it's obesity or diabetes or, or you know, even irresponsible behaviors like refusing to wear your seatbelt. Um, smokers, I suppose, pay cigarette taxes, uh, uh, alcoholics uh, pay liquor taxes, but these are not the same things as what we are talking about in Quebec. Uh, so, you know, as much as people uh, may be angry at the unvaccinated for uh, costing us more money uh, in healthcare and, uh, you know, arguably for uh, making the pandemic worse than it needed to be in our hospitals, you know, this is not an approach that we take with uh, other diseases and, and Frankly, I mean, at least in, in Ontario, most of the doctors who I have seen speak out on this uh, issue um, have, have sort of recoiled from the idea, really, really um, do not like the idea at all. Well, of course, Quebec is going down this road because of the Omicron wave and how much more transmissible it is than the previous variants. And we discussed last week how a lot of Ontario's COVID numbers really can't be relied on at the moment. And we should be looking at something else instead. You want to give us an update on that? Sure. Uh, as we talked about last week, you know, the raw count of COVID-19 cases in Ontario has stopped being a good indicator because the virus has really uh, outrun our ability to find it with testing. Uh, so instead, uh, I talked about looking at the fraction of tests coming back positive, uh, the hospitalization numbers and wastewater surveillance. Uh, and we are seeing some very preliminary signs, and I want to really stress the word preliminary there, uh, that we might be at the peak of the Omicron wave uh, in Ontario right now. The 
the positivity rate for tests is down a bit from last week. Uh, hospitalizations are still growing, but they are not accelerating the way they were earlier in the month. Uh, and in Ottawa, Kingston, and London, uh, the wastewater surveillance seems to be showing a decline in the amount of COVID that they are finding in the sewers. This all sounds like very encouraging news, no? I mean, less COVID is better than more COVID, right? (laughs) Uh, But we need to keep in mind that hospitals are still under incredible stress. And, you know, none of these indicators is rock solid as far as they go. Um, I like that they're all largely pointing in the same direction. They they seem to mostly be agreeing with each other. Um, And of course, there's all sorts of more granular details that the province-wide averages don't account for and can't really tell us. So, you know, we could see fewer COVID cases overall in the next few weeks, while some places in Ontario could still have serious outbreaks. So with all of those caveats, yes, the data we've seen since last week's episode is more encouraging than what we saw immediately after Christmas. Good. Okay, one last thing. The Angus Reid Institute has done some polling on all the premiers for the last many years. And on Monday of this week, it revealed that Only 30% of Ontarians, 3 in 10, approve of the job Doug Ford is doing as Premier of Ontario. That marks a new low for his tenure at Queen's Park. Two-thirds of Ontarians say he has handled the pandemic poorly. Now, there are only two of the 10 Premiers in Canada that are more unpopular than Doug Ford is at the moment. JMM, I suppose I don't have to say it, but is that the kind of number you want to see four and a half months before an election? Uh, No. Uh, On top of Angus Reid's poll, there was another from uh, Greg Lyle at Innovative Research uh, that has the Tories tied with the Liberals in the mid-30s. Again, not the kind of thing you want uh, this close to an election. Uh, And it looks like we're going to get a few more polls out this week, and I suspect there won't be a lot of good news for the Tories in any of them. Uh, But let's add... It's winter, uh, COVID is back with a vengeance, and governments at all levels are struggling to deal with the Omicron wave. Uh, The next election is still months away, and there is plenty of time to turn this around uh, if (laughs) the Premier can catch a break uh, along the way. On the other hand, I do want to turn people's minds back to last April, which was the last time this government was in a public approvals crisis. And one of the things the Tories did to stabilize their numbers was to get Doug Ford out of the spotlight for a while. Uh, They relied instead on lots of public briefings and public statements from cabinet ministers. It sort of goes without saying that you can't do that in the run-up to an election, right? Doug Ford is the face of the party, and he needs to be out there selling the party's message. So one thing you and I will both be watching uh, keenly, I think, is how and if uh, Tory poll numbers recover in the next coming uh, weeks and months, and uh, how the party pulls it off. (laughs) Indeed. Well, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. And we got some nice feedback on Twitter from someone called Junebug from Space, who tweeted, quote, great to catch up with these two with my morning coffee. Junebug, we'll join you for coffee anytime you like. You can also shoot us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org. Uh, We also want to remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday, same as the podcast. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash onpoly-newsletter. Here now, my quote of the week. And let's go back to last week's announcement by the province to reopen schools. Here's the Medical Officer of Health, Kieran Moore, on why Ontario will not be copying Quebec and bringing in a special tax on the unvaxxed. 
We have not made that recommendation to government uh, ever uh, throughout this pandemic. Uh, it's not one that we would uh, bring forward. Um, it does, in my mind, seem punitive. Um, uh, we have always been supportive of uh, uh, adults uh, making informed decisions uh, for vaccination and have tried to increase availability and accessibility only in the highest risk setting have we mandated it. Um, and that was in the long-term care facility where all of us have realized uh, that the sacrifice of being uh, uh, the, the, well, the increased death rate, the increased risk uh, of severe outcomes uh, had to be balanced by maximizing immunization and protection of those individuals. Um, that is as far as this government has gone in terms of mandating vaccination uh, and it uh, putting a penalty on those that uh, have not been vaccinated has not been entertained by this government. Dr. Kieran Moore on why a tax on the unvaxxed is not coming to Ontario. I feel like you desperately needed to get an extra axe syllable in that <laughs> somehow. <laughs> well, what could I have done there? On why the tax on the unvaxxed is not a fact. Oh, is that, 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 I like that. I like is that. Is that coming close? Okay. <laughs> uh, and my quote of the week comes from NDP education critic Marit Stiles. Uh, she was speaking last week at Queen's Park immediately after uh, the Ontario government released its return to schools plan. Here's part of what she said. What really struck me was it shouldn't be easier to find out if there's a lice outbreak in your kid's school than a COVID outbreak, right? Um, and that's the way this looks right now. It is not enough for this minister to show up like he did today, uh, unlock the doors to schools on Monday, and then disappear again. Uh, as Andrea said, uh, there were some commitments made here today. It sounded like it. Uh, we'll see. It's taken them this long to get to that place. It certainly looks like to a lot of parents and families that I talk to out there, like this government closed schools so they could catch up on what they haven't been doing. And then they just didn't get it done. That's NDP education critic Marit Stiles with her assessment of the government's plan to reopen schools. And with that, we hope everybody manages to stay safe during the blizzard that uh, engulfed much of Southern Ontario this past week. Um, and we hope you get back to school, too, at some point. <laughs> that Someday. is this week's episode. <laughs> produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara. Or is it Matthew O'Mara? No, it's Matthew O'Mara. Production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe and stay warm, Steve. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>